Hello, and welcome back to People Management's That HR Podcast. I'm Maggie Basker. And I'm Siobhan Palmer. This month, we're broadcasting from HR's most anticipated and acclaimed event of the year, the CIPD's annual conference and exhibition in Manchester. It's an event that's tackled some of the major topics affecting HR professionals and their businesses. And this year, one of the most pressing has been the intersection of inclusion and the analytics that we measure it by. We spoke with Trevor Phillips, writer, broadcaster and business leader, and the CIPD's chief executive, Peter Cheese, about how data can either make or break diversity efforts, as well as the future of pay reporting. And we hear from some of the thousands of attendees about what they learned from speakers this year and what's on their agenda in 2020. Plus, Tim Pointer is back to help another listener in Tim's Pointers. All that and more in this episode of That HR Podcast. Now more than ever, employers are starting to incorporate a greater diversity lens into their recruitment plans and wider business strategy. And with the next round of gender pay and potentially ethnicity pay reporting on the horizon, people professionals are paying close attention to their current analytics on the makeup of their workforce. I spoke with Trevor Phillips, writer, broadcaster, and chairman of Green Park Interim and Executive Search on the business value of diversity data and how HR can assert itself in the boardroom. So what do HR professionals have to consider when compiling workforce data and looking at their business in a mathematical way? Uh, well, this is a pretty giant question about which we could have a three-day <laughs> seminar, but I think that the way I approach it is this. First of all, work out what it is you really want to achieve. And I, I, I think, for example, that the gender pay gap legislation will probably make more difference to the workplace than any single piece of legislation uh, since the Equal Pay Act. But people have got to grasp why it is we created that. Um, We put it in to the 2010 Act in the way we did. Bear in mind, the first thing that we did with the 2010 Act was give people the right to know what their workmates were earning Mm. because we know that one of the reasons for the gender pay gap was that women had no idea that men were actually earning more. And no matter how many times you put out a general figure, most people think that doesn't really apply to me. Mm. And even to this day, for example, in media organisations, people are surprised when journalist A finds out that journalist B is earning 10 grand more than she is. So transparency has made a big bit of a difference at that level, but I think total transparency about pay gap will force all organisations to ask themselves not a question about equal pay, because I think actually we've cracked the equal pay issue, Mm. but they will ask themselves, if we've got this big pay gap, what does it actually tell us? Well, what it mostly tells us is that people of this gender or that ethnicity are being funnelled into a particular function or a particular part of the business. And generally speaking, where some minorities, not all, and most women are funneled into areas where there is low revenue, earning potential, and therefore low pay. And that's what the pay gap is telling us. It's much more about occupational segregation than it is about pay discrimination. And that's why it's so profound, because... In order to reduce that pay gap, companies have got to think about why one group of people 
as it were, get allowed through this gate, another group of people do not get allowed through that gate. And that, in turn, generally speaking, leads to asking rather difficult questions about what are the skills that we really need to do engineering, let's say, or design. The second question, the second issue that I think that the ethnicity pay gap reporting will raise actually much more sharply than gender pay gap reporting is about the culture of most organisations. Because what I think we will find, and we've already seen this year that some data has come out of the ONS, which shows that there clearly is a a pay gap hierarchy, Chinese uh, heritage, Britons at the top, South Asians next, whites next, uh, Caribbeans next, and Pakistani and Bangladeshi Muslims at the bottom. I think what we will see is that high status and high paying jobs exist within a culture that discourages and in fact alienates or repels some groups of people. And I think that will be a very profound shock to the system to be able to show that in effect if you are a South Asian Muslim the culture of your organisation will tend to be such that no matter how capable, no matter how skilled, no matter how ambitious you are, the culture of the top tier does not embrace you. Mm. And I think that will, be, that, that will make a big difference. One of the things that I find I found really interesting uh, when you talked about the research that you'd done specifically talking around this organisation said they had uh, West Africans, but then there's a difference mm. between Ghanans and Nigerians. And... There has been a piece of research out saying that employers and HR managers want to collect data ahead of the the ethnicity pay gap yeah. and really be able to say, well, we would be on top of it. But the problem being, there's a hesitancy to ask people, what is your race? What do you identify as? What yeah. is your ethnicity? Because it then becomes an issue of, well, you know, we can say West African, but what does that really mean? Oh. And then there's different kinds of African are saying, different kinds of white or different kinds of Asian. Kind of how should employers be looking at collecting such an expansive amount of data? Because like with gender, it's not a binary. There's, there's a lot of nuance yeah. to certain questions that you then have to report to the government eventually. Well, this is why um, ethnicity pay gap reporting, though at least as uh, important as gender pay gap reporting, will be several times more complicated and more... We're going to have to be much more sophisticated in the way that we approach it. To respond directly to that, I think that when we start collecting ethnicity pay data, we're going to have to ask ourselves, first of all, what are we collecting it for? Well, my view is that we should be collecting it to understand the way that organisations treat different groups. And that comes to a very important, and it may seem like a really sort of um, theological, almost theological point, but it's extremely significant. Are we collecting data on what people say about themselves, Mm. or are we collecting data about what an organisation thinks somebody is. Mm. Um, Now, the campaign 
sort of orthodoxy is that we should be focusing on, we should be letting people speak for themselves and think what they are, say what they are. Here's the problem with that. Um, what people say about themselves isn't necessarily the same thing that other people think of them. We did some work which examined a sample of people with Turkish Cypriot names. Around half of those people, when uh, they ticked the box at the census, ticked white British. Mm. And the reason is not because they're not white British, it's because that's how they want to be seen. They want to be uh, regarded as part of that group. And there's nothing wrong with that at mm. all. The problem is it doesn't match up with what other people see in them. Mm. And even more, it doesn't match up with the way they behave. So that group, whatever they box they tick, are more likely to live in a particular postcode than others. So I think the issue of ethnicity pay gap reporting is going to be complicated by, first of all, that we'll probably have to have four, five or six categories. And secondly, we're going to have to decide, do we want to categorise people by their likely behaviour and the way they're seen by others? Or do we want to categorise them by what they want to say about themselves? Now, the natural thing is to do the latter. The useful thing will be to do the former. Mm -hmm. And that will be quite hard. Now, in fact, actually, I think in practice, once we've got used to it, it won't be that difficult. Because in the United States, they have a threshold. People have to report. And each company has to have something like 90% of people reporting to provide a valid result. Mm. And then they allow the company to estimate or identify the other 10%. And then there is a validation officer whose job it is to say, I think these results are basically right. I, I would be happy with that system, that we first require companies to make their best effort to get people to tick the box, and then they fill in the rest, as it were. And over time, I think it will become less alarming for everybody. Mm. But it will be complicated and it will be difficult. But the data we will get out of it will tell us more than we have ever known about the way companies, government departments and so on regard and treat different ethnic groups, which is something we really, really need to know. And it's worth saying, by the way, that you know differences between ethnic groups aren't just about other people's prejudices. They mm. are also about preferences. For cultural reasons, for example, there are some um, some groups, uh, I think somebody did a study on Bangladeshi young families mm. whose daughters wanted to go into the health service. And what was interesting was that the families did not like the idea of them becoming nurses, but didn't mind the idea of them becoming doctors. Because for them, the idea of becoming nurses would involve handling people, particularly men, mm. in a way that would be regarded as immodest, whereas they didn't think the same about somebody who was a doctor. You know, you can say it's not, it's not really like that and so on, but these are the kinds of things that govern people's behaviour. Mm. Um, as we become a more diverse society, we need to get used to the idea that people have preferences that come out of their backgrounds that, you know, some of us might not share, but we have to acknowledge that not everybody's the same. That's the yeah. point of diversity. And I guess my, my last question was around what can employers do? And you were talking around there's a long game and then there's 
the simpler but also more you have to do something very incremental and kind of going over that a little bit um, more because a lot of HR people would sit there and go, well, my company wants an initiative and HR does get a bad name for doing initiatives and having so many, but your point being an initiative is really only as good as it is, but you still need to have something that's happening and changing every day because it is that incremental bit that's really going to affect people on the ground as opposed to an initiative which could just hang on a wall like an award you said. Yeah. Can I make a general point yeah. about HR? <laughs> I want to make a general point about HR because it relates to this. One of the things that I'm very surprised about in the, in the people business mm. is how timid it is about mm. its place, particularly in the corporate world. When I started work, HR basically was a handmaiden of the boss. You know, fix this, sort out the salary details, send the contract. That Mm. was HR's job. Since then, partly because we've changed the shape of the economy where people and talent actually are the most important thing. I mean, they really are the most important thing rather than Mm. that's what people say as a slogan. It is actually, if you're valuing a company, that's what you would look at first unless it's a property company, let's say. But in most, most of the economy, that's what matters. It seems to me that the, the HR profession still behaves as though it's a handmaiden, when mm. in fact it is probably the owner of the greatest asset in most mm. businesses. Now, if you are the owner of the asset in most businesses, what you're going to do is you're going to curate that asset, you're going to improve it, and you're going to protect it, and you're going to shape it yourself. I think that in answer to your question, HR people don't seem to me to be aggressive enough in, in asserting their right to develop mm. that, the people asset. And what I mean by that in practice is that I don't know why directors of people aren't saying, I've got a 10-year plan to skill up our people or to change them in a particular way or to give them a range of different capabilities and that actually I want the firm to invest in this and I will give a a return through productivity gain, let's say, of this amount. Now, I can give you a project plan that will take me from here to there in minute steps that will show improvement every quarter. Mm. Uh, I can do some things now which will show what we could effectively do. But what HR still seems to me to do is to wait for somebody to tell it to do something Mm. rather than to take advantage of the fact that it effectively is the owner of most enterprises' greatest assets. So, you know, if it were me, I would say, I've got a 10-year plan. This is, this is what the shape of our talent should look like by 2030. Now, in between now and then, here are 100 improvements I want to make in different places. And if you want a flag to wave tomorrow, I'm going to create a specific scheme of this kind or that kind. And I would do it in those. But I would make the first of those by far and away the most important. At the moment, I think HR tends to do the opposite, to do the plan, find a few, uh, to do the initiative, I beg your pardon, Mm. that you can wave as a flag, to try to offer a few small steps, but not play any big part in thinking about what does this firm look like and what does this people look like Mm. in 10 years' time 
And by the way, that's my business, not yours, Mr. Sales and Marketing. So I guess the question then being, how can HR people who sometimes are very timid go to a board and assert themselves because sometimes they aren't even invited to the board to say, like, we're going to do this unless there's a problem. And then they say, well, we can see that we have a diversity problem. Where's the initiative? And then HR goes, oh, well, I can do that. But it's really they're only invited to that conversation when there's a problem, I guess. How would you recommend that they then assert themselves ahead of a problem to be more preventative instead of being uh, someone that's yelled at often? Uh, Speaking as a chairman, one of the things I love is somebody giving me the answer to a problem that I didn't know I had. I mean, I prefer it if they... I mean, it's more important than that. They give me an answer to a problem that I know I've got, but that's Mm. usually something immediate. But what I really most like is somebody who says, I'm knocking on your door, I've got a plan, and it answers a problem that actually you didn't know you have, and here it is, and without pausing for breath, here is the answer, and it's all yours, Mr Chairman. I mean, I, I think... I suppose what I'm really saying about being aggressive is not, I I think HR people should be shouting. Mm. What I mean is, I think they should have a plan and they should go and knock on on the door of the CEO or the chairman and be relentless in making them pay attention to it. Mm. I mean, all that they can do is say no. And, you know, by and large, they won't fire you for having an idea, unless it's a really bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, But I think... I think the HR people tend to to think that their actions have to be contingent on revenue, Mm. on transformation, organisational design, whereas actually it should be the other way around. Mm. The revenue should flow from the stock of talent we have. The organisation design should be configured in a way that matches the people that we've got. And by the way, the other thing in modern businesses where HR people really, really ought to be taken by the throat is that by and large the HR people are always the the owners of um, culture and most businesses are now beginning to get and that's, you know, that's why you get the investors writing the Larry Fink letter, Mm. for example. Most businesses now know that getting that culture right is almost entire the, 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 the biggest of the games. While data and analytics can help drive diversity and equality in the workplace, the process of pay reporting hasn't always been rosy. I spoke with the CIPD's Peter Cheese about how legislation is progressing and he had some thoughts about what companies need to do to make this data meaningful. I started by asking him what impact legislation like pay reporting is having on inclusion in the workplace. I mean, I think there's been a lot of debate on these subjects quite a while, and I think most... I mean, I I often describe behaviour in businesses as a normal distribution, right? So you've got fantastic standout at one level and really poor practice at the other level. I'm absolutely sure that normal distribution goal is moving in the right direction. But you you can still see, of course, many organisations, business leaders, who think this is just a bunch of fluffy stuff, uh, they think it's about rules and compliance. I mean, I'll, I'll give you some evidential points. I mean, we look at something quite tangible, like gender pay gap, which is an aspect of what we're talking about in terms of diversity and inclusion. I can't remember the exact stats. You can look it up online. But, but we, we work very closely with GS, the Government Equalities Office, who monitor all of the reports back on companies on gender pay gap. I forgot the exact, so don't quote me on the percentage, but I think it's about, I don't know, 20% of companies have no narrative. Well, what does that tell you? So I, I report a number... 
and they give you no narrative. What, what is that going to tell you? What I think it profoundly tells you is probably two things. One, that company just sees this as a compliance thing. It's a tick box exercise. And the second thing is they don't really understand it. And it's incredible when you think about it because you would never report a financial number in your profit and loss or your cost with no narrative. So why do you think you can report this stuff with no narrative? But this is all part of the normal distribution itself. And so even in the second year of reporting, you know, there are a lot of organisations, including GEO, and we certainly said it loud and clear, you report the number and you give the narrative. Because if you don't give the narrative, then I don't know what you're doing, I don't know whether you're taking this seriously. And what's more, other people will write the narrative for you. Particularly since what we've seen in the second year is, and I know the media jump on these things, that dark needle was never going to dramatically shift in a year. And for many companies, it sometimes got worse. You know, I was talking to one of the big online retailers recently about this, and, and um, they said, oh, we're really worried about our gender pay gap. And I said, well, what is it? And I said, well, it's pretty high, and, you know, particularly on a medium basis. And I said, but this was a, an online retailer who is in the women's fashion sector. Well, you can guess the makeup of the workforce, particularly the more junior ranks. It was very predominantly female. Uh, and then in the management ranks, actually, you know, it was reasonably gender balanced. It was roughly 50-50. But because there's all these women in the junior ranks and the lower levels of pay, they had a big pay disparity. So I said, well, you're not going to fix that, are you? I mean, would you honestly believe that your business model is suddenly going to recruit loads and loads of men in to have a gender balance at the lower levels of the organisation in order to get your numbers right? Yeah, so, you, so it's about understanding a business. And it's about having a narrative that explains that and then says, yeah, but the things we are doing is making sure that we're providing progression routes for women and we are getting a, you know, perhaps improving our gender balance in the management levels. So all of that type of stuff. And, and if you don't write this stuff down, it's that people invent it for themselves. But I think it, it, that's the shift that we're seeing and it needs to encourage all these different channels and you know, to say, yeah, this is not just about compliance. It's about really insight in your business and do you understand what is going on and how you're going to affect it so you've spoken a lot about uncertainty for all mm. kinds of different mm. reasons not just for example brexit yeah. but different ways of approaching human resources and people management and yeah. different factors for human resources in particular how can people work in day-to-day and employers work in day-to-day react to that or adapt what adaptations do you think we need to cope with all these changes in HR, and it's not unique to HR, I think many business practices have been driven by things like best practices um, and quite rigid models of thinking. You say, well, this, this is what we've always done, so we're going to keep doing it. Or this is what everybody else does, so that's what we're going to do. And, and now you know, I think what we're seeing and what we're trying to encourage is, is a step back from that. And, and we've talked a lot about the mantra of being much more principles-led, evidence-based and outcomes-driven. Uh, and principles-led says, uh, okay, well, let's explore what is an organisation, what's our purpose, what are our values, what do we believe in, what are our principles? And the example I often use is, yeah, the principle of inclusion. Okay, so we, we believe in that. Now let's go back and look at all the things that we're doing and say, are they working for or against those ideas? If we have created standardisation in the name of efficiency... So we've standardised the recruitment processes, we've standardised all of our benefits programmes and all those sorts of things in the names of efficiency. Well, that might be efficient, but it's certainly not inclusive. Yeah, I mean, these, these are points in time where we've got to have the confidence, as I said, to step back and then anchor ourselves on things like principles, anchor ourselves on things like evidence. So what is the data? How, 
for taking inclusion, how inclusive are you, how diverse is your workplace and how much evidence have you got to understand that that particular practice is working against some of those ideas or whatever it is, or to take mental health as another good one, we're all talking about that. What really works there? And it's so easy for people to say, well, I've found a sticking plaster and I'm going to implement mental health first aid. Now, interesting idea that of itself, on its own, I think can cause more problems than it, it, than it solves for. You have to look again at the whole mental health thing very, very holistically. So I don't know if it's, it's getting a half of your question, but I think it, it is absolutely our ability, as I said, to step back, base ourselves more on principles, not just rules or compliance or so-called best practice, to look for the evidence, to work, and evidence comes from academia and behavioural science and all these other things, but it also comes from data, and it does come from experience as well. And then to be really clear, and yeah, what outcome are we trying to create from all of this? Not just I shoved in some new process and I feel good because I put a process in there, but what outcome are we driving for? And as I said, I think a lot of business in my experience has, has worked not from that, but much more from, well, this is best practice, this is what I've always done, here's a process I've put in because that makes me feel good, uh, without understanding, or, or here's all the rules which we've just created, without really understanding what we're doing it all for and what outcome we're trying to drive for. Our podcast jingle was kindly given a trendy revamp from Music at Work, who coerced, or gently encouraged, conference goers to partake in lively renditions of well-known chart toppers. But it seems it was the speaker sessions at the CIPD conference that gave everyone something to sing and dance about. Let's have a listen to what attendees had to say to People Management's Lily Howlett, who was right in the epicentre of the CIPD's biggest annual event. I am here with Caroline Nugent from the Financial Ombudsman and we are at CIPD Ace and how have you found the event so far? I've really loved it. I was here, I've been here for the two days and what I've liked is the whole variety. There's so many different subjects and just catching up with friends. What sessions have you, have you attended? Diversity. Yeah. I think it's really important for HR at the moment, that whole inclusion. Um, some stuff around talent. I think we've still got some nuts to crack on talent management, so it was good to listen to some of that. And engagement is really hard, people, keeping people engaged for such a long time. What's the main thing you think you're going to take back to the office from ACE this year? I suppose for me, just getting the team to think about I, I'm very much into data analytics. I think as a profession, we have not used it enough. Um, so I keep on and on at my team about data using evidence-based data and just taking snapshots from what we've been doing today and just feeding that in into their day-to-day work because obviously you can come up with lots of ideas but practically how we're going to make that work for me is getting the rest of my team engaged with it. How have you found the CIPD ACE conference so far? Oh, it's been really good, really uh, insightful to be honest. I mean I've been asked to have a look at um, our culture recently so I've been interested in quite a lot of the themes that were, were in the conference anyway but specifically I think it's been it's opened my eyes to, to some of the, the main themes that go around at the moment. Certainly around D and I has been absolutely insightful today, the, the speakers. But also the slant that the, that the um, CIPD conference has put on wellbeing this year has been really, really useful. Um, and has certainly sparked off a lot of uh, future conversations for when I get back into the organisation. 
how was the event been so far? Really fun. Yeah, this is yeah, this is my first CIPD conference. It's your first um, one. Yeah, so I didn't know what to expect really, um, and actually everyone on the stands has been really knowledgeable, really friendly, really welcoming, and it's you have some really good conversations with people out here. And then in terms of the seminars, I find them actually really insightful. Yeah. The speakers are really good. The content that they're delivering is really really relevant content. Yeah, absolutely, and it's the kind of thing that you can listen to and you can take away and put back into whatever yeah. it is that you're doing. And you've just had a caricature. I have. How was that? <laughs> oh my God, I was nervous. I was really nervous. We, um, actually, the girls in my office, they came to this last year and so we have the caricatures from last year up on our wall and oh. they were like, you absolutely have to go. So we've got like a Hall of Fame in our office well, with these. And you're going to be added to it <laughs> now. This is your, oh, brilliant. Officially part of the team, yeah. So alongside lots of knowledge and great HR tips, you've got a caricature to take back to work. <laughs> exactly. What yeah. an epic the main experience. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> podcast, bringing you all you and now here to battle the toughest of workplace quandaries, this podcast's own HR Tim Pointer. So, Tim, I hope you enjoyed that pun. It was not, I think, our top quality, but it, it's getting there. Well, for Hercules, it was a puny pun. Yeah, you know, we're not super strong sometimes. <laughs> That's why we need you. This month's question is, I started a new job six months ago where I'm the only L&D professional. My company has never really done development or learning before, and it's new for me, too. I enjoy the job and want to do well, but I've started making silly mistakes, like getting details wrong on start dates or specifics about some of our training. I feel like I can't stay on top of it all. My boss has noticed some of my mistakes, and she's told me my work has been great otherwise, but I'm really fixated on everything that's going wrong. What do I do? Fascinating email, isn't it? Because the first piece I take from this is that your boss believes in you. Mm. And for anybody in any role, that's so important to know that you're supported. And then I add on to that, you've been doing this for six months, you're new to the company, you're new to learning and development, and and the expectations of the company haven't been set. So I think you, this individual is processing an awful lot mm. and probably expecting an awful lot of themselves, mm. perhaps more than their bosses by the, by the, uh, the tone of the email. You look at all of this and I think it's that, old adage about preparation the importance of preparation and perhaps just dialing down the amount that she or he is expecting of themselves preparing delivering and having some time for review so often we're going at a thousand miles an hour and we never stop and think how did that go you know what went really well and how do I amplify that and sustain that going forward rather than going what went what went what went wrong what could I do better? Yeah. Think about what went really well, what you're really proud of, what, the, what your best bits were, how, <laughs> you know, what, what are your greatest hits? And think about how you amplify those. And by amplifying where you're at your best, you actually squeeze out mm. the pieces. It's funny, I was at an awards do last night and you know, Sa- Sally Phillips was the host. From, um, oh, that's she awesome, sorry. Amazing, <laughs> a really amazing host. But it was really interesting. She obviously has done amazing movies, TV, yeah. radio, everything. And she got to a point presenting and comparing and she lost the room. And she said, oh, that didn't go so well, did it? And you saw her reset mm. and start again. She owned the mistake. She reset herself and then she moved on and got her momentum back. And this is someone who's got you know, such an amazing broadcasting and performing track record. And it was really interesting. I was talking to a 
uh, group uh, HRD from another company afterwards, mm. and we talked about that moment and watching someone who's so professional go through that reset. And if someone at that level can do it, we can as well. And I guess one of the things a lot of people are talking about right now uh, is imposter syndrome and really comparing yourself, I think, really harshly to other people. And I think especially at the beginning of your career in in that critical like first six months where you're kind of at this awkward stage of saying, I'm new to the team, but in reality, you're not because you've been there for six months. You have some experience behind you, but you do. And I feel like in this email, really look at your criticisms and you don't look at enough of your wins. So I guess one of the things I would be interested in, especially with imposter syndrome and comparing yourself to other people who might have more experiences, how do you look at your wins? Because that can be really difficult to say, yes, I've messed up. I missed a start date, but I got this new L&D thing that we hadn't had before. And look at how great that's going to be for our team because no one ever considered that. Absolutely. And I think particularly when you're uh, developing and delivering um, learning solutions, you know that bizarre piece of research that people are more scared of public speaking than they are of death. Yes. <laughs> that Yes, very accurate. <laughs> mm. and, it, and, you know, so sometimes when we look at someone, particularly when they're delivering a training solution, we're like, wow, they're so on it. And then you find out they've been doing it for the last 12 years. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's why. That's, That's the why. thing. So I guess it's also the idea that you don't know what's going on in someone else's head when you're doing that direct comparison. And I, I at least know a lot of people who in HR would say, like, it can be really daunting because I have a boss who's looking very critically at my work. And I guess when it comes to a manager not only celebrating but also kind of calling out stuff, how do you then say, like, how do I go forward? Because it also sounds like this is a really new role. So there might not be someone above them who's ever done L&D before or have a role model to say, like, I'm making silly mistakes, but... How do I go forward? How should I be structuring things? Especially if like your manager says you're doing a really good job, but how do you go forward on that? There's three key things that I take from this. First is, this person's boss believes in them. Mm. That's a great starting place. Secondly, they have the opportunity to build on the good work they're doing because when they're referring to silly mistakes, that means that the body of work they're delivering is sound and there's some pieces that they need to get better at. Mm. So your boss believes in you, you're delivering good work, you've got room to grow, and by the way, you care. And that's the most important thing of all. The best thing about this whole, the way this is all written, there's that real dedication to improving, learning and going forward. It's all there, and with time, I'm convinced it will come together. So Siobhan, this was your first ever annual conference as a writer for People Management. How did you enjoy it? It was big, I think, was my main takeaway. It's also my first podcast. I'm doing so many You've got this so month. many firsts. But here's the thing. It only gets better because the CIPD conferences just build and build up. I think my main takeaway from it was, unlike the Festival of Work, there were no therapy dogs. And I was very upset. There were no puppies to be seen. And I was so sad. But I got to meet Trevor Phillips. And I also got to see Peter Cheese. So, you know, you take one, you give one. If any CIPD event organisers are listening, um, then that's our feedback. Therapy dogs would have been. I think that is just icing on the cake for all of the people. I'm going to speak on behalf of people management. 
because I know that a lot of people on our team would say, bring forth the dog. Yeah, it was it was amazing. It was very, very big, but there was loads of interesting things to speak about. Um, I went to a lot of very interesting panels about things from the four day week to data analytics, and there was really so much going on. It was, it was eye opening. And that's it from this edition of People Management's That HR Podcast. Thanks to all our guests, Trevor Phillips, Peter Cheese, and all the delegates featured in our Vox Pops. And of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Keep up to date on all things HR and That HR Podcast on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see your comments. I'm Maggie Vasca. And I'm Siobhan Palmer. The producer for this episode was Anushka Tate and Rethink Audio. And we will see you next month. Bye! 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 bye, bye. bye. bye.